You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr. Mick Pope. This episode is entitled, Does History Have a Future? Human Vocation and Divine Mastery in the Anthropocene. Now, the challenge of climate change and other aspects of the Anthropocene, which is the sum of human impacts upon the planet, requires a massive cultural shift in human society. It's not a matter of just recycling more or, you know, using less shampoo or not flying as often as as important as some of those things might be. It's a massive cultural shift in human society that's required. Our recent research has identified several what are referred to as social tipping elements, which is uh, are aspects of human society that we need to intervene in to produce this shift in human society. One such tipping element is society's values and norms. And this is a place where faith groups, um, and for example, pronounce by so-called spiritual leaders such as Pope Francis and his Laudato Si can have a significant impact. But this in turn raises an issue of how history unfolds and how we might understand it. Now some secular models understand ethical change as a natural process where new ethical frameworks emerge from otherwise random events. In this episode I want to talk about the idea that the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, presents a model of history, or more properly creation, which is open to creaturely agency, that is the actions of you and I, and not just um, a stage on which God uh, acts as the puppet master. While history does not represent a linear progression or regression to either hell or heaven on earth, the church is called to exercise its agency in a rapidly changing world as part of its missional mandate to love and serve the earth. Now, I've talked about the Anthropocene in other episodes, but in essence, it represents a departure from the stable conditions that existed for about a period of 12,000 years. And these conditions are referred to as the Holocene. Now, the Holocene is the period where civilization has risen, city-states, eventually producing countries, agriculture, with which we feed ourselves, where written languages have developed, stratified societies, and of course, the world's major religions. And the thing that characterized the Holocene compared to the colder conditions of the Pleistocene was a stable, warm climate with sufficient greenhouse gases in the atmosphere to allow agriculture to proceed. But since about 1950, Western society has produced a lot of greenhouse gases uh, in the burning of fossil fuels and the production of fertilizers and cement, driven by population increase, urbanization, an obsession or fetishization of gross domestic product, and so on. We've built so many dams that we've modified the wobble of the Earth's orbit, and we've burnt so much greenhouse gases, 
or so much fossil fuels to produce greenhouse gases that we've modified the climate. And so we've perturbed the planet, in particular what's referred to as nine planetary boundaries, which specify uh, what Will Steffen and his various co-authors have defined as the safe operating space for humanity, which in turn goes back to the conditions of the Holocene. So we've made a mess. Now, climate change, of course, is the best known of these nine planetary boundaries. And what it means is that we've gone beyond natural climate variability, which has been driven in the past by changes in the way that solar energy has been distributed about the planet as the Earth's orbit has changed over time. And of course, internal changes that have happened due to interactions between the atmosphere and the oceans. In Australia, for example, a case of that or an example of that would be the El Nino Southern Oscillation. So that's a natural, regular climate variability that produces droughts and then flooding rains in Australia due to these interactions. But as we've burnt fossil fuels and changed the way in which we use the land, we've modified weather patterns, warmed the climate, saw sea level rise and melted um, ice sheets and the, the Arctic ice. So what we've done is we've really started to tip the Earth system. Now, one of the problems with defining a safe operating space is that our exit from it is not linear. So one of the things that we know about the way in which stars evolve over time is that they get brighter. And I won't go into the physics of that now. Uh, but the one of the implications of that is that early in Earth's history, the sun should have been too dim to allow liquid water on the Earth. And this has to be resolved with various feedback mechanisms, like there was more ocean than land, and the oceans absorb more heat, uh, reflect less uh, sunlight than the land, and there were more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, for reasons I can't go into now. Now, a classic model developed by um, maverick scientist James Lovelock is his so-called daisy world model. So it's a, it's a world where you have um, black daisies and white daisies, and the sun grows brighter slowly over time. Uh, and obviously, the daisies have a range which they, they can grow in, a, a thermal comfort range, if you will. So too cold and no daisies grow, and too hot and no daisies grow. Before daisies evolve, the Earth's temperature increases as the sun's brightness increases. And then once the daisies uh, evolve or appear in this model, black daisies are preferred initially over white daisies because they absorb more heat when the sun is dim. And then as the sun gets brighter and the planet gets slightly warmer, then the white daisies are preferred because they reflect more sunlight. And so the relative numbers of the daisies produce a, an equitable climate. But once both it gets too hot for either daisy species to exist, they die, and the, the temp, Earth's temperature increases with increasing sunshine again. So that represents a tipping point, and one that's irreversible, because once you've lost the daisies, they don't appear again. Now, in the real Earth system, as I alluded, there's various feedback mechanisms for ice sheets and the oceans and life itself. But now we're facing tipping points, which represent radical departures from the conditions that we, we enjoy now. So the Amazon rainforest risks tipping and becoming open savanna, something I'll talk about in another episode. We risk losing all the Arctic sea ice and ice reflects suns, sunlight, so it keeps the planet cooler. We are currently seeing the melting of permanently frozen Earth in Siberia, so-called permafrost, which produces methane, which in terms is a greenhouse gas. So you can see there's all these tipping points, small continued pushes of the Earth system 
are leading to rapid changes in in the climate all of a sudden, big jumps. So people are starting to talk about social tipping points as well, and particularly in the context of, of global warming. So we've seen, for example, the emergence of social movements like the Arab Spring Uprising, the school climate strikes, and Black Lives Matter marches. Now, we don't know as yet uh, how these movements will impact history. They certainly haven't emerged out of nothing. They've emerged from pre-existing conditions and so on. But whether or not you could predicted the Black Lives Matter marches or Greta Thunberg and the school strike and so on is yet another thing. And it's still too early to, to properly appreciate whether or not these will cascade like snow and ice down a mountain slope uh, to, to produce an avalanche or not. Now, there's a, a fellow called Stuart Kaufman, and I, I may have mentioned him before in another episode who wrote a book, Reinventing the Sacred. And in it, he talks about the idea of emergence in two senses. So emergence is this idea uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And you can have emergence that's about our knowledge, which is simply to say there's no way you could have predicted one thing appearing from another. And he gives a classic example of this is that lungs, the things that I'm using to breathe now, and, and so are you, evolve from early uh, the swim bladders of early fish. And a swim bladder is an um, a uh, an part of your body or part of a fish's body that allows it to stay at a given level in the ocean so it, it rises and you know the the swim bladder expands and contracts but now we breathe with it who would have known looking at a primitive fish that the swim bladder would evolve into a lung and the answer is that no one could possibly have known so the lung emerges from the swim bladder uh, and you know out of our state of ignorance but more than that what Kaufman argues for is that the things that emerge from the evolution process are far more diverse than what existed beforehand. I mean, a world full of fishes would have been interesting, but a world full of birds and reptiles and mammals that all use lungs is even more diverse. What Kaufman says is this. He says that laws of nature, laws of physics, can be defined as the following. A short or compressed description available beforehand of the regularities of the phenomena that it covers. In other words, a, a law of physics or a law of nature is a shorthand to describe the entire of the variability that you see. In other words, you can boil the universe down to a few fundamental laws. But if the initial states of something can't be fully stated, in other words, you don't know all the bits that you need to know to go from a swim bladder to a lung, then evolution doesn't break the laws of physics, but it can't be fully described by them. In other words, the things that evolve from evolution are new and novel and non-reducible to the things that come before. Now, this is important for our, for our, our current um, discussion. Stuart Kaufman also applies emergence to the evolution of ethics. Now, our moral reasoning evolves with civilizations, and Kaufman calls for us to understand this evolution wisely. Now, law for him, in the human sense, is, quote, refined expression of moral reasoning, or at least you'd hope it would be, um, that laws actually reflect uh, considered moral reasoning and not amoral reasoning. He also describes them as, quote, an emergent living body, which means that law changes over time. Now, here's a classic example of a very small event which gave rise to a very large change. 
1649, King Charles I was tried for treason. Now, at that time, you couldn't try the king because the king was above the common law. Now, the barrister who was reading out the charges, um, Charles clearly didn't take a liking to, and so he was beating him with his cane. And the barrister kept reading the charges, and the King Charles kept beating him with a cane until the silver tip came off. Now, being king, he doesn't bend down and pick up his own stuff. Barrister, pick this up. No, I'm not going to. And on this went until the king bent over to pick up the cane tip. And Parliament interpreted that bending over in front of them as a bowing to their authority to try the king. I mean, you meet a king, the king doesn't bow to you, you bow to the king. All of a sudden, the king's bowing to Parliament. Parliament goes, we can try the king. And the whole course of English history changed. So a, a totally new state of affairs emerged from a relatively innocuous event. And so Alona Otto and her co-authors have identified six social tipping interventions where hopefully small perturbations or interventions can produce large rapid changes. Now they define, they define um, social tipping interventions uh, uh, as something that can activate, can contagious processes of rapid spreading technologies, behaviours, social norms and structural reorganisation with their, within their functional domains which we refer to as social tipping elements. In other words, you make a small poke in one of these things and you get a whole new emergence of technologies like the smartphone which has rapidly changed society, uh, behaviours and social norms. They identify one as a social norm where faith groups can have an impact as, quote, revealing the moral implications of fossil fuels. In other words, what they're saying is if the church banged on for long enough and loud enough about the fact that burning fossil fuels is morally, now morally wrong, then society could change rapidly. Now, continued fossil fuel burning disproportionately affects uh, our neighbours in who are vulnerable uh, social groups such as the global poor, particularly women and children. And of course, in time, the continued burning of fossil fuels means that we're not being good ancestors. So we're not being kind to our children and their children because of the impacts that climate change is going to have. Now, Otto and co-authors identify uh, a comparison or draw a comparison between fossil fuels and the transatlantic slave trade, where they say, quote, Changes in the ethical perception of slave labour at the time were consciously initiated by a small group of intellectuals. And what they ignore, rather ironically, is that that small group of intellectuals were Christians, the Clapham sect. But the point is, ultimately, uh, that spiritual leaders like Pope Francis or you know, uh, people like Greta Thunberg... Uh, and her climate strikers can generate pressure in their peer groups to ostracize the use of products involving fossil fuel burning. And this, in turn, can drive a, a, a large tipping change in society. And I'm going to talk more about the specifics of that uh, in the second half of the program. Well, welcome back. 
we were talking in the first um, part of the program about the complexity of the Earth system and the fact that it's currently undergoing some tipping points, which means that we're in store for some rapid changes in the way in which the Earth operates. And they won't be good. And then by analogy, we started to talk about the tipping points in our society. And one group of researchers have identified that faith groups can have a great deal of influence, in particular in values and norms, and say that the burning of fossil fuels is bad, and that this should be a key message of the church. Now, unfortunately, if you look at the United States at the moment, it's politics, you can see the exact reverse. William Connolly, in a paper entitled The Evangelical Capitalist Resonance Machine, identifies the exact opposite of the effect that Otto et al. want to address. They see uh, what Connolly sees is that there's a, a identity uh, affinities of identity and sensibility between evangelical Christians and what he calls cowboy capitalism of the media and the Republican Party. Uh, and the twofold implications of this is the propping up of the fossil fuel industry in the United States and increasing dissatisfaction with American evangelical Christianity. Um, and in a future episode, I might talk about a book that I'm reading on at the moment that deals with exactly this, so-called ex-evangelicals or people who leave the church altogether because they see their elders trashing the planet. So, but what that says to me then is while Otto say that there's a social tipping point to be had to stress that burning fossil fuels is immoral, it's actually a shallow goal because Connolly identifies this resonance between Christianity and capitalism in the modern world in the West, and that's the bigger problem. So how do we deal with that deeper problem? Well, it's looking at the idea of human agency, which we can see is pushing the planet to its tipping point, and in the Hebrew Bible, this concept of Sabbath. So my brief argument then is firstly that Sabbath is central to the creation account of Genesis 1.1 to 2.3. Not how creation was made, but the, the, the necessity of resting. Secondly, the Sabbath layer overlays an earlier tradition of God creating by bringing order out of chaos. And so keeping the Sabbath uh, recapitulates, reenacts the act of creation and maintains order against chaos. And thirdly, you can see in the Hebrew Bible that the Sabbath is the occasion both of economic reset, but also the rest for creation or nature, whichever you prefer. Hence, the Sabbath principle is much broader and a deeper tipping point than merely pointing out the immoral immorality of fossil fuels. So the message the church can have is the importance of rest uh, and, and, and that rest reminding us of the fact that the creation has a creator. Now, if you read Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, which is the, the first creation account, you'll see that it's structured around the Sabbath, the seven day. There are seven days of creation, earth the word earth is used 21 times in, in the Hebrew and God 35 times. In the first day of creation, light is mentioned five times and day twice, which is, of course, a synonym in, in Genesis 1. So there's another sevenfold structure or a heptad. Now, it turns out that the two New Year festivals in the life of Israel was Tabernacles, which was in the spring equinox, and Passover, which is in the autumn equinox, seven days long. And so John Levinson, the Hebrew scholar's argument, is that the shift um, in going from celebrating New Year to celebrating the Sabbath is saying that the keeping of the Sabbath each and every week is a, a reenactment 
of the act of creation. You know, in the ancient Near East, of course, its harvest is important uh, because it's kind of you go through uh, the winter and the rains and so on, and then you merge into spring and then you harvest everything and that's re the renewal of life to the earth once more. Levinson is saying is that this is reduced to the Sabbath. The importance of the Sabbath is reminding ourselves of the seasonal cycles and the renewal of life on the earth. And what we see then uh, is that it's likely that this Sabbath concern in the creation account is a later addition. And for, for Christians who are worried about inspiration and so on, let's set that aside for the moment, of the so-called holiness school. And the key text or the classic text of the holiness school is Leviticus 17 to 26. Now, there are various signs we can see of this, but the, the two are, that I'll point out at the moment are firstly that in Genesis 1, there's eight acts of creation in six days. And so that's kind of, and they're grouped in a symmetrical fashion, but nonetheless, that kind of suggests that there's there's been an addition. But also the fact that in Genesis 2, 1, we get an end of creation, that, that creation is completed, and tying that to the end of Genesis 1, that's on the sixth day. Uh, and there's a nice bookending in language between Genesis 1, 1 and 2, 1, talking about the heavens and the earth. But then in verse 2, you get the same verb, uh, talking about the work being finished on the seventh day and God ceases on the seventh day and sanctifies it and blesses it. So this repetition of language of completion is saying that actually no creation is not finished, quite finished on the sixth day with all the creating done, but it's only finished on the seventh day when God sanctifies that day and blesses it, sets it apart, the creation of ultimately a holy time but also if you draw comparisons between the creation account and the setting up of temples in the ancient Near East, the creation of sacred space, which sets us up for the temple and the tabernacle later on. So there's this rationale for, um, for Sabbath keeping. But also there, it's been noted for a long time now that there are parallels between Genesis 1 and ancient Near Eastern creation stories. The Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian Genesis, now, we needn't think that the writer of Genesis sat down with this Enuma Elish and was just copying. It's the cultural air that they breathe. This is a point that Peter Enns makes. But if you, you compare the, the two accounts, there's a demythologizing in Genesis that takes Tiamat, which was the, the sea monster, the personification of salt water, the dragon, uh, the chaos monster, and she's killed in the... Um, the Babylonian creation story, and chaos is conquered. Whereas in Genesis 1, there's no resistance, there's no battle, but nonetheless, chaos is ordered. You get the deep, tehom in the Hebrew, which is the the equivalent of time at the, the, um, the dragon in the Enuma Elish. And it's, it's much more obvious when you go into the Psalms. There are Psalms that still carry the illusion of this, but in essence, Genesis is this suppressed battle um, story, or what they, what's called chaos camp, to use the German. And so what happens in the ancient Near East, in, in the Enema Elish, is once Marduk has conquered the beast, conquered chaos, and brought order so that agriculture might proceed, the other deities build Marduk a temple. So we shouldn't miss the point that 
ultimately it's it's a thread that you have to follow through the entire canon of scripture but ultimately Genesis 1 sets up the scene for the creation of a temple and there's lots of resonances there's lots of um, parallels in language between the completion of the temple in Genesis sorry the completion of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 and the creation of the tabernacle in Exodus 39 and 40 which eventually ends up in the Jerusalem temple and there are so many elements of creation in in the Jerusalem temple that we're meant to see that the temple itself is creation in miniature if you cast your mind to the end of the book of Revelation, for example, you see that there is no need for a temple because God's presence is everywhere. So the the idea then is that creation itself is a proto-temple. You get the building of the tabernacle in Israel. That becomes part of the temple in the center of the land of Israel, making you know that holy by extension. And then in the, the New Covenant, New Testament, that becomes the entire of creation. So... This whole idea of Sabbath then is tied up with that as well as the creation of sacred time and sacred space. And sacred space is a place where order reigns. And order in the ancient world, as, as I indicated before, means a regular harvest, means the ability to feed yourself, means society is, is functioning properly. And the way in which disorder is introduced is, for example, in the account of the flood, human violence which corrupts the earth. Political intrigue. Um, you know, you, know you, you see this as the, uh, the idolatry that results from um, marriages between Solomon and foreign wives. And, and so you get political instability, the introduction of chaos, and this chaos threatens God's good order. And one of the things that falls out of this um, idolatry and worship of foreign gods, of course, is the... Uh, the bill, the the maintaining of a standing army. This, this is all in, in Solomon's reign. The maintain maintaining of a stand, standing army, which means that you need to have um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You you need more food to feed that standing army because they can't farm, and and therefore, well, what do you do then? You don't give the land its rest. You don't give the land itself its Sabbath. You keep growing crops and growing crops without rotation, without rest, remembering in an age before fertilizers. And what do you do? You push the earth system to its absolute and utter limits. Hence, the idea of Sabbath is picked up once more in Leviticus 25 and 26. Now, Leviticus is that book that we don't read very often. But it, Sabbath in Leviticus 25 and 26 forms the basis of economic reset. So every seven years is a Sabbath rest for the land and a Sabbath of Sabbaths is the Jubilee where land is returned to its original, original occupants. So that's Leviticus 25, 13. And the land is never to be sold permanently because why? It belongs to God. The, the, the word land is the same word earth in Genesis 1, this Hebrew word eretz. So we're meant to see a direct connection between the original creation and its seven-day uh, cycle, and the way in which the land of Israel is to be cared for, and by extension, ultimately, the, the entire earth. And the land is never to be sold permanently because it belongs to God. And, and I think this is a, a principle upon which a global, not mere, merely an Israelite ethic, can be built. The Sabbath marks the ceasing of the creation of the heavens and the earth. The land of Israel is also 
as I said, picks up on this this word, this Hebrew word eretz, which is used for earth in Genesis 1, and land in, in Leviticus. Hence, as I said before, creation, um, the land of Israel is creation in miniature. Sabbath keeping is therefore a universally applicable principle, not just to be reduced uh, or not just applied to the history of Israel. And it's anti one of the deep drivers of climate change, which is the accumulation of wealth at all costs. Now, of course, I'm talking in, in, in global terms here, but this obviously can apply and should apply to the individual. Because imagine somebody you knew, a family member, um, end up in bankruptcy and you say so you take their land from them and you in, maybe you enslave them to pay back the debt at, at the Jubilee that debt is cancelled and they their land is returned to them. So you can't, or your, your lineage can't accumulate wealth forever. So it's, it's this idea of the infinite accumulation of wealth, as it turns out by a few, but those of us in the West are all rich and so we do this to varying degrees, is a deeper moral principle than simply saying um, that it's a moral imperative to decarbonize because what's driving the carbonization is the consumption. But Sabbath rest in Leviticus is also for the land. In Leviticus 25 and 26, the seventh year Sabbath is portrayed as being for the land to take a complete rest from its customary agricultural provision. That's in Leviticus 25 verse 2. There is a prohibition on the people of Israel sowing, pruning or reaping because that year is set aside as a complete rest for the land while at the same time the land keeps its Sabbath rest. So, the land itself is described as having agency and a need to obey the commandment of God to keep its Sabbath rest. Of course, that didn't mean that you couldn't gather from the land at that time. Just that uh, you weren't sowing or pruning or reaping. You could still gather. While Israel is in exile, the land was to enjoy its Sabbaths and be restored to its covenant observance. And you can see that in Leviticus 26 verses 34 and 35. In particular, in verse 42, God promises to remember his covenant with the patriarchs and also to remember the land. Now, no covenant, covenant agreement with the land is explicitly mentioned, but land is identified as, quote, mine by God. In contrast to Israel, who are merely identified as aliens and tenants in the land. The mutual covenant of Israel and, and the land with God is implicit in their shared need to keep the Sabbath. The land was meant to keep the Sabbath, and Israel was meant to keep the Sabbath. Israel's observance of the Sabbath, quote, leaves space for the land to, to practice its obedience to Yahweh. And that's a quote from um, a, a wonderfully uh, named paper, Transgressing, Puking, Covenanting, which I may talk about another time. Sabbath keeping, then, as a principle, not simply as nitpicking, uh, a nitpicking exercise as to whether one should shop or play footy on Sunday or whatever sport you like, but a socio-economic principle presents itself as a social tipping point that the church could initiate. In a pandemic world, people are learning, willingly or otherwise, to rethink the work-life balance while governments are redistributing wealth so those who are affected can survive. Although, sadly, this seems to include the fossil fuel industry receiving handouts but you know nonetheless there's there's been a lot of spending on social good of late to help people survive through this global crisis so perhaps then this is a time to reimagine life around sabbath principles as a tipping point the church can embrace and embody 
And who knows what social order could emerge from that. So for now, thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.